Hey, Mac, when does deer season start? Well, if you want the best deer herd possible, Lanny, you need to start right now. Right now. That's, That's why right. we're starting our promotion. I mean, we've got a deer season starts now promotion on plantbiologic.com where you can pick up our game changer soybeans, our forage soybeans, and our spring protein peas. While you're there, you might as well go ahead and pick up some brassicas like our final forage and winter bowls. Yeah, stock up for the cool season planting right now. Listeners to the GK Podcast, if you use coupon code GKPOD, you can save an additional 10% off our entire selection of warm season, cool season, and clover food plot seed. Get started today and visit plantbiologic.com for an unforgettable fall. Hi, I'm Jeff Foxworthy, and welcome to Gamekeeper Podcast. If you want to learn more about farming for wildlife and habitat management, then buddy, you are in the right place. Join the Gamekeeper crew direct from Mossy Oak Land Enhancement Studio as they discuss the latest wildlife and habitat management practices, news, and of course, hunting. There's no telling what you'll learn, but I'm going to tell you, I bet it's interesting. Enjoy. We're live in three, two, one. All right, everybody, welcome once again to West Point, Mississippi, home of Mossy Oak brand camo, uh, the Gamekeeper Studio. A lot going on around here today. Everybody's on their phones over there, must be checking Facebook or Instagram. Dudley, you just got back from a concert, I understand. Yeah, uh, 20th year anniversary. Congratulations. My wife, Kelly. Went and saw Billy Strings one night and Karangban the next night. Man, you know what a Who? saint Kelly is. For putting up with him for 20 years. Yeah. <laughs> they, they say the first 19 are the toughest. Right. It just gets better every year. And, and thankfully, my wife enjoys going to New Orleans and live music, too. And we had a blast. Well, good for y'all. So. Yeah. That is good. Yeah. Yeah. You, look, you look relaxed. Maybe you slept good finally. What was your oh, yeah. favorite thing you ate? Ask uh, Dudley today. Well, there was this little place called Cleo's that a local told us about, and it was an absolute hole in the wall. And they served Mediterranean food, Mm -hmm. and it looked like you were ordering out of a closet that they were cooking it in. And uh, anyway. It was delicious. It was absolutely delicious. So go to Cleo's next time you're in New Orleans. Put them on the sponsor roll, Bobby. This is like we're we're giving (laughs) advice. You know, uh, people can listen to this and know how to take vacations and know where to dine. A wealth of information, plethora. Yeah, we know a little bit about a lot. Eventually, Dudley will be given movie recommendations. Hey, Mm. I've got some favorites. There we go. Well, so Lane, what's going on in your world real quick? Uh, just, you know, hunting season, trying to figure out how to get back out in the woods as quick as possible. Is, is Hayden uh, itching? Is he- yeah, he's. you know, we spent some time in the field. He actually hunted with his mom last week uh, and got close on a buck, but uh, couldn't quite make it happen. Had to take the old one more step, and he took another step in the wrong direction. But, uh, yeah, everything's, everything's good, man. It's in the middle of the season. Again, I'm just thinking about, you know, I, I'm so – I've got a, a curse – when I go to hunting camp, all I want to do is hang stands and go work on stuff. So uh, we got to kind of back off that and start hunting pretty soon. <laughs> <laughs> it is time. I, our guest has been here yeah. uh, hunting for a few days, and he this morning he began to see some bucks chasing does. Oh, a really? Bit, so. A little ruddy out there. Yeah, so good this is hear. early December. Just, mm-hmm. I don't know when this podcast will air, just so we're kind of setting the date, the, the timetable here. Pre rut. Yeah. So our guest today, we've got, uh, uh, we've got. I see that Mac is putting the horns up to his lips yep. right now. He's, he's, he's getting the trumpet out of the case. <laughs> we have Craig Brewer. All right. Yeah. <laughs> Look, he he is a legendary 
tarpon guide from the Florida Keys. And I, th- I think he's also known as the mayor of Isla Mirada. All right. People talk so lovingly about him. If any of you guys listen to the Millhouse podcast, which mm-hmm. is a big saltwater podcast, he's been a guest on there numerous times. And he's got a, just a great story. And he, he I, I met him a few years ago fishing with Doug Jenner sure. down in the Keys. And um, I was uh, just blown away by this guy. What really impressed me, Dudley, Okay. As we're fishing, we were we were fishing for tarpon. He was having a blast, but at every opportunity, he was teaching me something. And one time, he reached over there was just a mass of grass floating by. He grabbed it, threw it down in the boat, said, "Come here," and he started pulling stuff apart. And there was all kind of little crustaceans and little shrimps and amoebas. And, you know, and he was just pointing all that stuff. So I, I like to learn. As, oh yes, as, you do. You know, and and uh, so that's the kind of guy he is. There was just everything was going on, but. Anyway, uh, the keys are fascinating. No doubt. And look, everybody in in Mississippi needs a friend in the keys. That's just the way it is. <laughs> yeah. you know I mean? That's just the way it is. You know, you could you know, just like what y'all doing. Y'all have shared experiences together and everything else. That's really cool. So, well, from what I and we'll let him start talking, but uh, we'll, we'll you know, talk all over you. That's all right. <laughs> we love that's to right. talk. So, but you know, he fishes. That's what he does for a living. Yeah. He's guide people. But what he wanted to do to get away and relax was come sit in the hardwoods and watch oh, deer yeah. hunt deer. And he's a great well, I'm excited because one of the most enchanting places I've ever been in my life are the Florida Keys. You know, they really are. It's just a, a very unique place. I'm sure he's got a lot of insight of what it, what it was like and what it, hopefully, you know, what we can do to keep it that way. And it's interesting you say that because, you know, we, we love hunting. We love habitat work. But yeah. Uh, the first thing I think about doing in the summer is going fishing somewhere. Saltwater will call yeah. you. The, the saltwater. Yeah. yeah. Well, so so here's what made me think this will be an interesting podcast is down there fishing with him. He's explaining how, boy, you know, 20 years ago it was different. We mm-hmm. had the water quality was different. The, the, the everything, was, just listening to him, and he kind of got up on a soapbox, and you could tell it was a lot of things were bothering him, or he was very passionate about it, might be a better way to say it. But I just wanted him to talk about what it used to be like, yeah. what it's like, and what's going on. And maybe there, I think there's a thing called Captains for Clean Water or something. Yeah. Maybe there's a way we can help. This is our responsibility as hunters and fishermen is to talk about this kind of stuff. You know, Nobody's out in the field more than we are, and we can make the observational data and start talking about it. I mean, that's our role we can play in all this stuff. So I'm super here, excited to have him talk sure. about it. Well, Craig, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Uh, you know, uh, 61 years old just uh, last month. I've uh, been uh, spent all those 61 years in Isla Morada. Uh, started <laughs> guiding. Actually, my father was a guide since uh, probably the late 50s. Died in a plane crash in 1975 um, when I was like 14 years old. But I grew up around the docks. I grew up around the sport. Um, my father used to work for the Shakespeare Tackle Company as the manager of their field test operations. Um, so he was way above his game when he first started. He was doing movies on like 16 millimeter, eight millimeter wow. film back in the sixties, which you can still find some of those. Um, if you look at, uh, I think Costa Del Mar classic fishing videos, tarpon fishing, you'll see one of my father in the sixties. So anyway, that's kind of how I grew up and got into the industry. Um, I did a lot of different things growing up as far as work, uh, high school graduation, never went to college, uh, spent most of my spare time fishing. Uh, when I got out of school, I started doing construction work, running heavy equipment, doing carpentry, stuff like that, and uh, fishing on my off time. And finally, I got to where I was fishing so much that I didn't really want to go to work. So 
I figured I better do something about it. So in 1987, at the age of 27, I went and got my captain's license and started uh, taking fishermen for hire. Uh, being the son of a famous guy down there, I took uh, wanted to be a fly fishing guide because that's the uh, top of the pinnacle as far as I'm concerned. So that's basically what I do. One of the coolest things about the Florida Keys and what makes it different from a lot of other places is you've got gin clear water in a lot of places. And you've got some water that's a little bit dirty, but it's not so dirty that you can't see the fish in the water. So basically what I'm doing all day long is hunting. I'm hunting for my quarry, and when mm -hmm. I find them... And I tell people that a lot of times while we're out there fishing because you're looking for your fish, you're looking to see what's going on, you're standing on the ready in the bow, looking at all different directions, you might see a glimpse of different color in the water, you look and next thing you know there's a six-foot-long tarpon laying there, perfectly still, lay your fly out in front of them, let it sink a little bit, twitch it a couple of times, watch him come over, inhale it, then you're hooked up and it's a blast. But the difference between that and the doing the kind of hunting you guys are doing, if you make a good shot and it's successful, the fun just starts because mm -hmm. now you're fighting the fish, you're doing all this other stuff up here. You go through all the process first. If you make a good shot, the game's over. Yeah, that's true. Hopefully, hopefully. <laughs> Headed to the freezer. Yeah. Yeah. He right. made that whole laying that fly out sound so easy. It, it's, yeah. it's, it's not that easy. It, it is. <laughs> for me, it isn't. Yeah. It isn't easy, but that's part of it. Everybody starts at the beginning, you know. So some people learn a little faster than other people do. And, uh, you know, you just got to get out there and do it. And if you're passionate about it, and the really thing I like about fly fishing is um, – the art of fly casting. You can be doing it whether you're fishing or not doing it, and you still have a good time with it. And uh, you can't just pick it up and start going. You have to learn and take steps and, you know, have success, have failures, go through the whole process. Mm -hmm. And everybody makes mistakes. Just the guys who are good at it, they make fewer mistakes. And that's mostly because they practiced more. They've gone through it. They've made the mistakes already. They've graduated into it, and now you're successful. So you really have to work at it to, to be good at it. Most people can't just pick up a rod and go ahead and catch everything they throw at. Although there's two types of anglers a lot of times. You get the guy who comes down, he's never fished for tarpon before. He sees one, he makes a cast out there, it lands 15 feet from the fish. He goes over, eats it, he hooks him, he catches him. He's like, wow, this is easy. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's not me. That doesn't happen <laughs> to me. <laughs> and then there's the guy who comes down and he blows the first 50 shots that he has or opportunities that he has and he can't make it happen. He gets frustrated and then finally he hooks one and I think you're better off if you do it that way. And you know, it's a bigger payoff, I think. But um, put the work in. That's right. Put the work in, and and it's, if you're successful, it's it's awesome. But the, the thing that separates the keys from a lot of places is the water quality and the cleanliness of the water. You can see what you're looking for, not just big tarpon, but little bonefish and bigger bonefish and um, snook, redfish, all kinds of stuff. And the really cool thing about the keys is. You've got the Atlantic Ocean on one side, and you've got the Gulf of Mexico on the other side, and you've got the Florida Bay, mm -hmm. and then you've got the uh, Flamingo area, which is basically the, the Cape of Florida itself, which, you know, back in, historically, the water from Lake Okeechobee used to flow through the river of grass and then come out, so the water, the water salinity content around Flamingo and some of those places up in the northern part of the bay was like 7 to 14 parts per thousand of salt. Um, unfortunately... Due to political stuff, big sugar, a lot of agricultural stuff below Lake Okeechobee, they've diverted that water now, so the water flow isn't getting into the northern part of the bay. So our salinity levels are going through the roof. So ah. they did some tests uh, last year, I think, and we're finding in places where it used to be historically 7 to 14 parts per thousand, they're finding 98 parts per thousand, which is basically three times saltier than the Atlantic Ocean because that's about 38 parts per thousand. Mm. So. The, the whole ecosystem is changing from a freshwater-fed estuary to a super-high salinity lagoon. Right. Occasionally, you get a big influx of 
of contaminated water coming out of Lake Okeechobee, which is full of runoff from septic tanks, uh, golf courses, phosphate mining, all different kind of ag, stuff like that. So when that hits the water, we have huge algae blooms, which will then blanket the flats, cause the sun to be blocked out, shut down the photosynthesis. The seagrass will die, float to the surface, chokes out all the oxygen, kills the fish, and then the whole cycle begins again. So uh, we have a lot of issues going on, but still, it's a great fishery, although it's nothing like it was when I first started guiding. Mm-hmm. It's uh, changed quite a bit. We hear the same thing, you know, on the other other side of the Gulf, uh, down in Louisiana. Oh, certainly. Um, you know, from the freshwater runoff and the uh, addition, of, I guess, is pelletized fertilizer used in agricultural fields. Oh, yeah. Well, not, just, not just agriculture, yeah. yards. Yard, oh, yeah. Yards okay. make up more space and we may have to fact check this, but I think yards take up just as much, if not more space, as and agriculture. Huh. Oh, yeah. Interesting. And people just have to have that perfectly mowed oh, grass, grass with no weeds in it. Absolutely. Absolutely. No so. weeds. We have other things that are dealing with, too. The Army Corps of Engineers came in to Lake Okeechobee, and back in the day when people came to Florida, they wanted to develop it. They wanted to dry out the wetlands and stuff so they could build houses. So Army Corps of Engineers came in, dug a couple canals, one of them going west to the Caloosahatchee River, the other one going east to the St. Lucie River. And they basically built a dike on the south end of the lake where the water used to overflow the south end of the lake and go with the river grass. They built a big dike there so they could hold enough water during the dry season that the sugar farmers and uh, the lettuce farmers and everybody in the Everglades agricultural area, which is all the fertile ground just south of the lake, they had to build a dike there to make sure during the dry season they could hold enough water in there. Unfortunately, over years, uh, the integrity of the dike was questionable, so the water levels would get to a certain point, and they'd have to do an emergency discharge. So they'd mm-hmm. open the locks at the mouth of the Caloosahatchee and the St. Lucie, and they'd just let millions oh. of gallons of contaminated water come flying out of there. So it was doing detrimental damage to the uh, ecosystems in on the west coast of Florida and on the east coast of Florida, and basically stopped the water flow from the northern part of the Florida Bay, which is my backyard. Mm-hmm. So it's changed the whole ecosystem. And right now, the fishing down there in, for certain species is as good as it's ever been. Redfish and snook, trout and stuff like that in the Florida Bay is unbelievable fishery. But the tarpon fishery, which is, um, I don't know how many billions of dollars a year are generated through that fishery, is, is struggling because the tarpon, like a lot of other things, uh, after a while, this, things are changing, not healthy. A lot of the biomass that they used to feed on isn't there anymore, so... A big school of fish, large fish like that, have to eat something soon. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, with all the stuff going on, it's changing the fishery a little bit. But it's still probably the best tarpon fishery in the world, even though it's nothing compared to what it was when I started fishing in the late '80s. But are the 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 inshore species <clears throat> becoming more prolific? Uh, not really prolific. It's, it's changed. It's cyclical pretty much. When I was a kid, we had a great red fishery there. Mm-hmm. I mean, huge schools of fish moving around. And then they disappeared for a while for different reasons. And then uh, we had snook fishing, which was pretty good there too. But for a long time, the snook were non-existent. And the red fishery was good. The trout and stuff like that were, were good. But the snook weren't there. Now, all of a sudden, the snook started coming back real strong. And then uh, the redfish were taking a, a hit for whatever reason. Who knows? Basically, Florida Bay, though, we have big schools of redfish out in the Gulf that are breeding schools, and their their fry or their small fish will move into the Florida Bay for mm-hmm. safety, and they grow to a certain size. Once they get about twenty seven to thirty inches, they move out to the Gulf and and rejoin the breeding stocks. So, we were not getting any uh, 
reintroduction of the, the juveniles for a long time. And then for a long time, when they started coming back in after certain uh, events, uh, we'd see a bunch of small ones that were about the size of a, a silver mullet, mm-hmm. you know. And if there's a bunch of snook around, they're going to eat them just as fast as they eat mullet because that's one of their favorite things to do. So I think what was happening for a while is the redfish, small redfish were coming in and the snook were eating them so fast they weren't being able to grow big enough to get back upon the flats and get reestablished. So then comes uh, the freeze of or real cold winter in 2010. We had about um, 10, 12 days where the water temperature got down into the low 40s and it killed the snook by the thousands. Killed a lot of fish by the fact. Killed our bonefish, killed a lot of the snook, killed everything. So I think that gave the redfish an opportunity to start to grow and get bigger and establish themselves as a predator fish as well. So the snook, you know, aren't eating them as much as they were. So now we have good red fishing again. The snook population is coming back. So obviously there's food for them, but they eat a little bit different kind of stuff. But the tarpon used to come, migrate there, and we used to have a good resident population of tarpon in the Florida Bay, which we don't have that much anymore. Not many juveniles. And uh, the big ones used to come in. They'd migrate in from the West Coast up around Tampa, other places like that, come down, uh, hit East Cape, which is at the end of Florida. they make a left turn coming into Flamingo, and they move up into some of those basins and lay up, eat crabs and shrimp and mullet and pinfish and all kinds of stuff like that, which are... Um, really reduced in the numbers of those types of uh, food. Mm -hmm. So the tarpon come in there now, plus they don't like the salinity of the water in there. So they come in, they take a left turn, they don't like the smell of the water, so they just keep on going. So they basically have changed their migratory path uh, immensely. So the bay bay fishery is nothing like it used to be. Mm. So unfortunately. My my little personal observation is – uh, every t- every summer we go to the beach, and the first thing we do is set out crab traps. And uh, we don't catch near the numbers of crabs that, They're not that there. we're used to. They're not there, unfortunately. And that's due to, I think, lack of fresh water for the most part, which is being consumed by, you know, humans in the state of Florida and a lot of other places where you go to the beach. And, you know, that's where a lot of people want to be now. And the fresh water that used to flow into there and make the fresh water estuary or, the, you know, mm-hmm. the brackish water is no longer coming in there. So now you got super high salinity, so the crabs can't survive. There's not as many shrimp, so there's not as much food for the tarpon and for the other things to eat. So now they're doing alternative things to feeding on other things. So so that's what you were saying. That's what happened to that legendary spot, Homosassa, where mm-hmm. they were catching these giant tarpon. Absolutely. Certain times of the year around May, they'd go in there and there'd be huge tarpon, huge schools of tarpon. I mean, you look out and you'd see several thousand tarpon coming in. You know, while you're pulling around on the boat or doing whatever, you look off your trim tab, which is something that sits off the back of the boat, which helps you to stabilize or whatever. But you'd have big blue crabs, you know, nine inches across the horns there uh, hanging on to the back of your boat. Mm-hmm. They were so plentiful. So these huge schools of huge tarpon were coming in and just gorging on these population of crabs. Um, and sometime, I think, in uh, around 1980s or something, before they built the villages, you know, with the old folks' homes and all the other stuff or retirement communities – and started uh, draining off all the water. I think there's like five major rivers that used to flow into that part of the of the state. And, uh, you know, fresh water flowing into salt water creates a perfect estuary mm-hmm. and habitat. So once they started cutting off that fresh water flow, it changed the whole ecosystem there. And now the tarpon, they come in, there's nothing for them to eat. So they look around for a little bit and they leave to go find some other kind of food because and that's changing, you know, in a lot of different places. I think that's one of our biggest issues in Florida Keys is the food. Mm-hmm. So, and we've been seeing this for 
I know a couple of years in the news with the you hear about these red tides and these algal blooms. blooms and oh yeah, no, it's um, been going on. I started guiding in 1987, and I know when I started guiding, they were having the same issues back then as far as trying to re replumb the Everglades, and it's still going on today. I mean, there's been money allocated, set aside, and then you know squandered somehow or another politically and all this other stuff. So finally, we have some organizations that are trying to make a difference. Uh, Captain for Clean Water is one of them. And that basically got started over in uh, Fort Myers, I think. And what happened was Army Corps engineers went to them and they said, look, we can fix your problem over here. We can take and do deep water injection wells and we can take all this runoff mm. coming out of Lake Okeechobee and we can shoot it down past the aquifer into the ground and get rid of it. And then it'll quit messing up your your e- ecosystem over here. And they go, well, what about the guys in, in Florida, in, the, in Florida Bay? Uh, well, you know, that's another issue. And what about the guys on the, on the East Coast? They said, well, we can do the same thing over there, too, do, do these deep water injection wells. But they found out the cost to, to maintain those is astronomical. And the effect of dumping all that polluted water down below our aquifer, the chances of it seeping into our aquifer, which, you know, how many millions of people in Florida are drinking fresh water there. Um, so that they decided to band together. So captains from the West Coast, from the East Coast, and from the Florida Keys all got together, captains for clean water, to unite as a front to say, you know, we don't want you to fix one problem by doing this. We want you to fix the whole problem mm-hmm. and do it right so it benefits everybody. And well, fortunately, the- there's enough guys like you guys and myself and, you know, a bunch of other friends of ours who want to go enjoy the fishery, and it brings in so much revenue it's ridiculous. So now it's starting yeah. to get the attention of some people. We had really bad algae blooms a couple of years ago, which started to affect the health of people living on the Caloosahatchee River and on the Gulf shoreline and on the, the Atlantic shoreline or the Atlantic coast. And so then it started to affect the real estate market. Mm. Okay, so that's a whole nother lobby of people. And it's like, okay, not only are you hurting the fishing and hurting the environment, now you're getting into messing with real estate. You know, and people making money. So they're finally starting to do some things, and hopefully it's going to make a difference. They've already started, um, I think they've elevated about three or four miles of Highway 41, which cuts straight across the state from, like, Miami over to uh, uh, Everglades City. And that was basically a man-made dam to keep the water from flowing south, you know. And they built culverts. They actually elevated some of the road there. Uh, they're still doing some stuff downstairs because that runs through the Miccosukee Indian Reservation, too. So they have to give um, make the roadways so that uh, the Indians can use the stuff and it has to make water that can go under. So they're still doing a bunch of stuff, which is going to make a difference, hopefully. But maybe not in my lifetime, but hopefully in my my kids' lifetime. So well, the Everglades, it's, it's just a gem of a of a, oh a, yeah. A, when you somebody years ago recognized it as being what a special place it is oh, and yeah. and, pre- and preserved it, but it's changed so much through the years. And and I, I'm told now that y'all have got so many invasive snakes there that they, you can't hardly find a rabbit or a raccoon or we've got all kinds of invasive things there yeah we got iguanas coming in but yes in the everglades there are pythons burmese pythons that uh, you know somebody had them as pets and let a couple of them go and they just you know have, have gone crazy out there so and they get to be i think one of them they caught at least 16 feet long maybe even longer than that but they catch quite a few of them they've had um you know documented um pictures of uh a dead 16-footer with the full uh, deer in his belly. You know, <laughs> it's he probably, crazy. Probably died because he tried to eat the eat the deer. And then they've had uh, situations where uh, they had uh, one that I think was um, choked to death by an alligator. He tried to eat the alligator and so big he couldn't get it in. And alligators fight. They've done documentaries on it. So, But we have a lot of things going on there. But there's people trying to 
to make some changes like that, but nothing has made a difference as much as the, the water quality, I think. But. And so that part of the world has just developed so much. There's so many people living in it, like Dudley said, and, and putting fertilizer on their yards. And there's and sugar is a lot of sugar is sugar cane is grown in that part of the world. And, yeah. and the fertilizer for that is running off. It's just oh, yeah. causing a lot of problems. Oh, yeah. Like. Plus, uh, you know, I'd like to hear a little bit more from um, – some of the entertainment attractions that are around the Orlando area too, because <laughs> uh, well said. What is that like? Twenty thousand acres or something? It's, I don't know, but I don't know how many millions of people come to Florida just for that. So right. you think of how many people are coming here and flushing their toilet? And if you pull into places in Orlando, you go to a place called Shingle Creek, and it's a beautiful hotel there, and there's golf courses, and there's a sign there that says "Headwaters for the Everglades." Mm-hmm. You know, so it all starts right there. Everything that goes. From there, hits the aquifer or whatever. It goes down the Kissimmee River into Lake Okeechobee. So, and everything from Lake Okeechobee comes to us. So they could send us water, but they can't send us clean water unless they can do some different things. So that's a big part of it. They said, oh, we can send you all the water you want, but it's, you know, polluted with phosphate. There's phosphate mines above there. There's still a bunch of septic systems. So a lot of sewage runoff. You've got ag runoff. You've got golf courses. You've got yards. You've got everything. So, and unfortunately, what they say, you know, Floats downstream and yep. we're downstream of all of it. So even though, you know, they said it used to be the solution to pollution is dilution, but you can only dilute it so much. And then a lot of the water that they send out of there comes through these little feeder canals and stuff that go through neighborhoods. And they used to go through with these big like mowers. And they'd cut all the hydrilla and stuff, and they'd cut it up and they'd actually stack the dead weed up on the on the banks of the canals and let it just rot or they'd pull it out of there and take it somewhere. Now they go in with like a roundup or something and they spray it. So they're killing the, the aquatic vegetation in the canals to keep them free and flowing. So as soon as they open the locks in Okeechobee, boom, they're blowing all that weed killer and stuff. And where's it going? It's coming right mm-hmm. into the Gulf and right out to the estuaries on the Atlantic and the, and the Gulf of Mexico. And it's containing a bunch of weed killer. So when it hits a grass flat, what do you think it's going to do? It's going to kill all the seagrass. So now you have no seagrass, so you have no root structure to hold the sediment in. So as soon as the wind blows, sediment gets turned up. Now what used to be crystal clear water is so dirty you can't even see through it. So it's changed a lot of things. But It, it seems like uh, in the past the solution is just to let it go downstream to the next community. Well, let's, yeah. let's get it out. You know, and, yeah. and we we won't have to worry about it. But. Absolutely. And you think about it. You think about most of the industry back when, uh, you know, the United States would be informed or whatever. How many times you hear about a pig farm that's right on the edge of a river and, you know, all this stuff. What are you doing with the stuff? I would put it in the river and let it go downstream, you know. Not going to bother anybody. Well, yeah, it is because now there's something downstream. So it's amazing to me. Uh, I know I understand why they used to use the rivers to come in and offload their stuff and load stuff and use it for travel and shipping and stuff like that and and, and get rid of some of your waste. But now it's, it's become too popular, too populated. And mm-hmm. But I think, unfortunately, that's happening just about everywhere. There's something, wherever you live, there's something going on that makes things not like they used to be, unfortunately. And the Keys are still, it's not like it used to be, but it's still a fabulous place and one of the best fisheries in the world, so... It is a fabulous place. So let's let's you're kind of depressing me over here. <laughs> well, I know, and I don't so, really want to do that. So, so let's kind of change the tone real. a little bit and talk about what a guy can expect or when to come. When's a good time? I've, I know Lanny's gone down in the summer and they catch all these 
like uh, lobsters, 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 lobsters oh, dive, you know, yeah. and, and Lanny's smuggling them all back up here. I hear all these, <laughs> these, these numbers that he's catching. I'm like, what? Well, I don't know about that. <laughs> but yeah. so uh, as far as to, if a guy wanted to come down there and fish for tarpon, when, when's the best time to come and the other fish? Well, you know, it really depends. <clears throat> it really depends on what other kind of fish you're talking about because we have, that's one thing that's really cool about the Keys too. There's so many different species of fish and so many different types of fish and tarpon are just one type. We have, you know, all the pelagics that are right offshore. The reef line is three or four miles offshore. You got sailfish, dolphin, tuna, uh, kingfish, king mackerel. Uh, you got all kind of bottom fish, snapper, grouper on the shallow patch reefs. You got the reef where you got your fish cruising. You got, you can go out deep. There's guys now who are going out and fishing in 12 or 1,600 feet of water and dropping dead bait to the bottom and catching swordfish in the middle of the day, uh, things like that. You can still run to the Everglades and catch uh, snook and redfish on the flats. You can go up in the creeks and do it. You can fish the shoreline. You can fly fish. You can throw artificial baits at them, sight casting. You can go there with live bait and just pitch them up in the shore and catch fish. So there's a thousand different kinds of fishing you can do. So any time that you can get down to the Keys is probably going to be a pretty good time. And... Unfortunately, our staple fish, which we used to be the bonefish, we had some of the biggest bonefish in the world there, but they're not around like they used to be anymore, but they're starting to come back. Nothing like the size. There are the numbers that we used to have, but it's still a great fishery. But uh, I used to tell people, you can catch, uh, have your best day of bonefishing in the Florida Keys any day of the year. It just depends on what the weather is like. You know, obviously we're in the tropics, so if you've got a front coming in and the water temperatures drop, they're going to go to deeper water where they have more table stable temperatures. So they're still around, but they're not as accessible for the fishermen. So it really depends. But um, the major migration for the tarpon now is uh, probably April through the end of June, probably. We have a lot of fish that come in from South Carolina, come in from offshore, some that come up from Cuba, some that come from the West Coast. So everybody wants to who is a tarpon fisherman wants to do it in the spring, pretty much. So March, April, May, June is probably the four busiest months for the average tarpon guide in Florida Keys, which has changed a lot because it used to be after the migratory fish left, we still had a pretty vast um, local population of fish, which doesn't seem to exist as much anymore. And when it does, uh, you can't fish them as easily as we used to be able to. A big part is because of the seagrass die off. And if the wind's blowing 15 miles an hour, it, it chops up and makes the water muddy. The fish... They like to lay up on the surface. Sometimes if it's slick calm, you can get out there. You'll find them laying on the surface with their fins out of the water just sitting there. Now, when the wind starts to blow, they drop down a little bit, and so the wave action doesn't affect them. But you can't see them. As soon as they get a foot and a half under the surface, you can't see them anymore. So if you have a good day where you go out in the morning and it's slick calm, you better go out there and try to take advantage of it. And Sometimes you'll see them laying there. A big, Actually, a big Six-foot-long tarpon who you see on a mountain is going to be silver on the side, black on the back. But when you see them in the water out there, they almost look pink hmm. when they're in that dirty water. So it's pretty cool to look over and see, you know, a big pink log sitting there. And then catch him. Put the fly out in front of him <laughs> and strip it, and all of a sudden you stick his head out of water and a mouth the size of a five-gallon bucket opens up and hook him up, and then you're on. So, But, um, yeah, if you really want to try to catch a tarpon on a fly rod, you know, you can do it sometimes. They like warm water, first of all. The tarpon really favorite thing is to be in 78-degree water. It's his favorite place to be. Okay, he can't always find that, but a lot of times if you go out in the morning and it's 70-degree water temperature 
first thing in the morning, you may have to do some other stuff for a little while, and all of a sudden the tide might change and start falling off a flat that the sun's been radiating for a little bit, and all of a sudden you'll find 74, 75-degree water temperature, and the tarpon are going to go stick their nose in that and, and get warm. So that can happen really depends on the severity of the winter. Like January, February, if it's real cold, and then all of a sudden you get a week where you're going to have 80-degree temperatures all week, you better be down there. Okay, so sometimes you can't really predict what's going to happen. You have to just be there and take advantage of the conditions when they present themselves. So sounds like know. deer hunting. Yeah, exactly. Well, you know, <laughs> it's, it's all the same. What are what are some other tarpon hot spots? Like a you know just certain areas. I, I know uh, being here, we hear about Venice, Louisiana. Oh yeah. Well, Venice, uh, Texas is starting to come back. Now, there used to be a bunch of tarpon in the Rio Grande, but then they used to start throw dynamite in there and blow them up, and then they'd mm. float up, and they'd take Down them, drag, Texas. Yeah. drag them out, <laughs> and put them in the fields for uh, fertilizer crops, you know. So they almost wiped out the tarpon fishery there. But over the last few years, it's coming back pretty strong. So, But uh, Costa Rica is a pretty famous place. But, you know, down there most of the time you're fishing in the rivers with muddy water. The fish are in the rivers rolling, so you're blind casting heavier lines and swinging the fly through the zone, getting bit and whatever else. But the sight fish for tarpon, there's really no place like the Florida Keys. Mm -hmm. And the west coast of Florida, Apalachicola, some places up there, and the fish migrate up the whole shoreline. So there's some certain places. People are taking advantage of Apalachicola. They started fishing in Homosassa. I think they found those fish probably up there and uh, really got popular fishing for them in the early 70s and maybe even the late 60s. But I'm sure the people that lived there before were catching them the whole time. Boca Grande over on the West Coast, a lot of people, which is where the Caloosahatchee River comes out into the Florida Bay that, or into the Gulf of Mexico. A lot of people think that the majority of the tarpon that go home to Apalachicola, Florida Keys, everything come from there, which, you know, unfortunately, it's the Caloosahatchee River, which is the direct pipeline from all the stuff that's coming out of Lake Okeechobee when they do a, a discharge. So, um, yeah, supposedly what we had the, uh, the deep water um, oil spill a few years ago off Louisiana, they say that is one of the uh, major spawning areas for tarpon, bluefin tuna, all kinds of other stuff out there. So we don't know what the uh, long-term effect is going to be from oil spill and stuff like that and the, the stuff that they put in to disperse the oil and that kind of stuff. We don't know really how that's going to affect them. Uh, Bonefish and Tarpon Trust, spending a lot of money doing uh, research, tagging, satellite tags on tarpon, watching their migration, stuff like that, checking. So they say there's still just as many tarpon as there used to be. They're just doing different things. You know, I was reading an article in uh, Ducks Unlimited magazine last night, actually, and they were talking about how the flyways have changed and the ducks are flying different ways and some of the things that are causing them to, to change their pattern. And it's um, food, water quality, temperature, you know, if their stuff is, isn't, if they live in the north most of the time, the reason they fly south is because their food source gets covered with ice and whatever, and they don't want to deal with that, so they fly south to find food. So now the temperature is getting warmer, there's not as much snow, not as much ice, they can stay in their home base longer than they were before, and they don't really want to have to fly if they don't have to. The only reason they do is to go find food. So now they're changing their pattern, tarpon are doing the same thing. So unfortunately, instead of coming in and working the areas that we used to fish for them, we still do fish for them. They're doing the same thing, but a little further out, a little deeper water where they're less um, likely to come across anglers and other other people that are using the, the water for recreation and stuff. So, Hey, this is Toxie Hayes with Mossy Oak. You know, hunting and fishing, gamekeeping, and taking care of the land with my family is my life. And I'll be honest with you, the one app that I'm on every day and use more than anything is on X. It literally has changed my life. 
from property ownership to roads, everything to do with understanding the land better. I even use it to plot acreages all the time. Every function I could dream of, use coupon code MOSSYOAK to save 20% on your next Onyx subscription. Trust me, you'll be so glad you did. It's good news that a lot of these species are able to adapt to some of the human-caused changes that, that we're creating, but, you know, where's the breaking point? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, you know, thinking about ducks, uh, 200 years ago when they were migrating the Mississippi Flyway, they didn't see a rice field. Right. They didn't see soybeans. They saw timber. hundreds of thousands of acres of flooded hardwood timber. And now it's a completely different landscape. Absolutely, absolutely. So, and they can stop in and have a bite to eat, you know, without having to work as hard as they did. So, yeah, it's changing everything. But the good thing is most of these species were here before we were, and they're going to be here after mm-hmm. we are, I think so. I mean, TARP and I know have been on the planet for for a long time, millions of years. So we've only been here for, a, you know, a short time. So I think they're going to keep continuing to, you know, as long as we don't pollute the oceans with so much plastic and things like that, that would, you know, would make it detrimental. But I got a feeling long after humans are gone, tarpon will still be swimming in the ocean. So that's a good thing. But unfortunately, between now and then, what are we going to have to do to put ourselves in a place where we can catch them? Yeah. Kind of like deer hunting. Once all the, you know, the land has been developed and houses are what, you know, how are you going to, where are you going to hunt deer? I'm not sure. I, I, I think it's important that hunters and fishermen and, you know, we are the greatest conservationists are talking about this kind of thing. Oh, yeah. Instead of turning a blind eye to it or blaming it on something else, it's it's important to discuss it. Oh, it's yeah. our responsibility and, to discuss it. And like what that. we're doing to try to help, you know, as, as little as it is. I haven't owned a mower in 10 years. <sighs> We can so, tell by looking at your yard. I don't. Uh, <laughs> I like looking at trees and wildflowers and things like that, and I keep it clean right around the house. But uh, I don't fertilize my yard. I don't know who would fertilize their yard personally. <clears throat> now I'm not it's a just, friend of lawn mowing. Yeah, <laughs> like, uh, we, fer- we fertilize our food plots. Uh, you know, we actually fertilize our farm ponds mm-hmm. uh, here in the south. Um, but uh, I think that's pretty sustainable uh, the way it's done. Uh, you know, these are dammed up ponds. Yeah. Uh, but uh, well, anyway, it, it's a very interesting subject, and I'm I'm glad we're talking about it. No, yeah, there's all kind of organizations across the country too that are doing things to you know make it better, not just sustain what we have now, but to make it even better. So it's it's good good to see. So hopefully, anybody that's listening, if there's an organization that you feel like you can get involved with to help something going on in your neighborhood, please do it because do it. You know, that's what's going to make a difference. And fortunately, yeah, the popularity of fishing and hunting and outdoor recreation is exploding. You know, so we have a lot of people who are wanting to get into the game and spend money on it and do their stuff, but that just it's also putting pressure on what happens. It's a limited resource, that's right. Mm-hmm. right. Yeah. Uh, they, I've um, been at the captainsforclearwater.org site, and they do a really good job with the graph of explaining the story that, mm-hmm. that, that you were just saying. Uh, if you go there and, and look at the Our Fight uh, page there, it's a cool animation. So, um, And, you know, we talk about soil tests. You know, we, we do food plots around here. And uh, another reason that it's very important to get a soil test is is that you get that result back and you know exactly – what the soil needs, right. so you're not overdoing it. You know, phosphorus uh, builds up in the soil, 
And, uh, you know, the, the other ones tend to leach out. Uh, phosphorus will stick to soil particles and end up in the, in the water. But uh, if you put the proper amount out, and instead of just putting triple 13 out every, every year, year right. uh, you, you, you read what your soil test says and you follow it. For right. example, my farm, uh, it doesn't require much phosphorus at all. So um, do those soil tests. Uh, every, every little bit can help. Uh, be responsible. Yeah, I think it makes a difference to everybody. Matt, did you have a question? Uh, I did. I, 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 more of a request, I guess. Okay. So some people might not realize, uh, I mean, what Craig has done as far as like winning the gold cup yeah. and what that is like in the tarpon <laughs> world. I mean, it's it's called the World Series. I mean, it's a big deal. And I kind of just want like being a second generation winner of the Gold Cup, I kind of like to hear a little bit about the story and, and, and kind of how that moment was and how that went. Yeah, that's, that's great. I'm glad you brought that up. Uh, the Gold Cup, yes. That is um, uh, the the world, what is the, uh, the world championship of tarpon fishing and as far as I'm concerned. So, yeah, most of your best uh, tarpon anglers around the world will come in and it's a uh, Basically, it's a tournament that was started back in the Florida Keys, uh, I guess, probably about 55 years ago. I think this is the 55th annual, somewhere around there. So, um, very prestigious tournament. Um, if you're in the tarpon industry as an angler or a guide, uh, one of the things that you want to put on your resume is a uh, uh, grand champion. So, um, interesting. My father was a guide to the grand champion in 1974, um, the year before he passed away, actually. And that was always something uh, on my radar as a guide. And that's one of the reasons I wanted to get into fly fishing. And for me, the pinnacle of fly fishing is to win the Gold Cup. Um, unfortunately, as a captain, I can't be an angler. So the only way I could win it would be um, guide, guiding an angler to the Grand Championship, which I was fortunate enough to do in 2010. So uh, every year there's a perpetual trophy with the name of every winner on there, the score and um, uh, whatever else. So... My father won it in 1974 with a guy named Ben Hardesty, who was the president of Shakespeare. I'm not sure what their score was, but uh, we won it in um, in 2010. I was fishing with a guy, a doctor, orthopedic surgeon out of Amarillo, Texas, named Thane Morgan, and we won it uh, with, I think, the second highest ever score. Mm. That's and a big deal. That's so deal. for me, it was a big monkey off my back that uh, I could finally put my name on the trophy along with my dad's and uh, a lot of the other guys in the industry that I have a lot of respect for. So that was very cool. And uh, when you do the tournament, they have different categories. They have a prize for the largest fish in the tournament. Um, they have prize. Basically, you're trying to fish for five days with a fly rod. If you think you hook a fish, you're allowed to catch five weight fish during the week. So a weight fish, they uh, determine as a fish that's over 70 pounds. Uh, back in the day when they started the tournament, if you caught a fish or hooked a fish that you thought was bigger than 70 pounds, you'd get him close to the boat and you'd stick him in the back with an eight foot straight gaff with a, you know, about a 10 inch stainless steel hook on the end of it and stick him and you'd throw him in the boat and he'd be dead and you'd take him back to the dock and they'd weigh him and you'd take your points, you get a hundred points per, no, 10 points per pound. So a hundred pound fish is worth a thousand points uh, for a release. If you hooked a fish that you thought was under 70 pounds, you'd fight him to the boat, grab the leader, which is, uh, you know, joined the, below the knot, which joins the fly line to the leader. You grab that, break the fish off, and that's 200 points for the release. So when you caught your weight fish, if you caught a 100-pounder had had 1,000 points there, you could, you, could, um, you could catch five releases and match those 1,000 release points with your 
thousand weight mm-hmm. fish points. Okay. But you could catch five releases, and you'd have uh, a thousand points in the bank, but you couldn't really use them unless you had a weight fish. So if you caught an eighty pound fish and you had five releases, you could only use four of those releases to match your eight hundred points. So you'd have sixteen hundred points, and then you'd have two hundred points in the bank, but you couldn't use them until you caught another weight fish. So the idea is to try to catch five weight fish as big as you can. A uh, prize for the biggest fish, and then a prize for a most released fish. So in 2010, we had the biggest fish with a 140-and-a-half-pounder. We no longer kill the fish. They stopped doing that about 20 years ago, I guess. Now, when you catch a fish that big, you got to bring him to the boat, grab him by the mouth, or stick a lip gaff in his mouth. Uh, we used to slide him up onto the boat, but you're not allowed to do that. Now, in the water, you have to take a big tire app, put it around the fattest part of his body, cinch it down so it measure his girth, slide it off of his tail, take a tape measure and measure him from the tip of the lower jaw to the fork of the tail. And then there's a formula that you can use it. Uh, take the girth squared times the length divided by 800, and then I'll give you basically the estimated weight of the tarpon. So that's how you have to qualify a weight fish. So um, I think in 2010, we had 140 and a half pounder. We had, uh, I think, two or three other weight fish. And then we had 18 releases. So I think we had 21 or 22 fish total caught and released in the tournament. So 140 and a half, we had the most points, and then we had the most releases. So we swept the tournament with every prize that they had. So In five days? In five days. <clears throat> I have to catch some fish. That now. is. Yeah. And, it, you know, uh, look, I, I caught a tarpon with him four or five years ago, and it took two hours to get it in. The, and that was not with a fly rod. I mean, it, it was all like – when you caught one, that was one, one a day was a, was plenty. Right in. Yeah. Well, actually, with a fly rod, if you know how to use a fly rod, you can catch them a little bit faster because you can apply a lot more pressure with a fly rod than you can with a lot of conventional stuff. And, you know, guys that practice can beat a fish on a fly rod and a you know, 100-pounder in less than 20 minutes a lot of times. You need to step your game up. I, I think so, yeah. Well, I, get out there and yeah, do your shadow casting yeah. in the parking lot. <laughs> I, saw, I saw some of that video, and you were just wiped out. <laughs> oh, my goodness. That was his first tarpon, though, I think. So, you know, like I said, it's a learning process for everybody. So everybody starts at the bottom, though, and then, you know, so you got to go out there and catch another one. So, But anyway, so the Gold Cup, yes, that was a huge deal for me. And um, uh I've been fishing it every year. Actually, I started fishing it the first year I started guiding. So I've been fishing it for, yeah, 27, no, shoot, 32 years now, I guess, something like that. 87 to 2001, whatever that that math is. 2021, whatever that math is. Goes fast, doesn't it? So, yes. just took his shoes off, so we'll have a number here in a second. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, when you think about it like that, you've only won it once. I'm just kind of... Yeah, it's it's, it's pretty tough. You know, I've been in in there in competition a bunch of times, but it's, uh, you know, it's a team sport, too. So, um, you know, the first few years I fished it, I don't know, uh, there was a guy named Glenn Flutie who was a friend of mine. He won it four or five times, and one year he won it, and I was talking to him, and I'm like, Glenn, how many how many fish did you catch to win that tournament? He said, well, we caught 10 out of 14 that we hooked. They hooked 14 that week and caught 10, and they won the tournament on that. And I think that week I was fishing with somebody. We went four for 38. Mm. Right, we caught four of the 38 fish that we hooked. Wow. Okay, so if we had, you know, had a little bit better, you know, odds with our landing catching ratio, and landing, yeah. we could have maybe done that. But that's all part of it. So you're fishing against a field. It's a 25-team field, and that's capped at that. So it's an invitational tournament. It's capped at 25. We usually have a full field and a waiting list. But you're fishing against 25 of the best teams that are out there. 
I just so, signed Bobby up on the waiting list. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You got it right here. He might be there for a while because, <laughs> yeah. because yeah, there's a pecking order. But, uh, yeah, you got to get in there and do it. But uh, it's it's quite a feat to do. Um, I was hoping to win it again last year. In fact, I was fishing with a good friend of mine that I've been fishing with for quite a long time. And, in fact, his grandfather was one of the originators of the tournament back mm-hmm. in its inception. So, um, he's going to win it one day. He's a very good angler. I've been fishing with him since he's about 12 years old. I think he's 42 or 43 now, and he's become a heck of an angler. And he'd been in the mix a bunch of times. In fact, last year we were fishing, and we were leading going into day five, but we didn't catch a fish on day five, so we went from first place to fourth place on day five, so we didn't win it. But I got a feeling that uh, it's going to happen. But you, um, It's not just about fishing, though, unfortunately. It's about you can tell when it's your time. Right. Because we were fishing with a guy, Dave Preston won it this year, and uh, we were bouncing off of him all all five days, you know, bouncing off of him. And the last day, he ended up catching two fish. And it was he told the story about catching his last fish, and it was in a place where we'd already fished that day. We knew there weren't many fish there at all because we had already been there probably about a half hour before he was there. But he was there last year in the tournament fishing with a guy, and he broke his push pole. So there's a friend of his that lived close by, so he called his friend. He said, hey, we just broke our push pole. Can you, can you bring me another one? So he brought him out another push pole, and that, you know, they lost about 10 or 20 minutes of fishing mm-hmm. because they didn't have a push pole. The guy brought him out a push pole, a good friend of his. And so last year his friend had passed away. Mm-hmm. So he's fishing in the exact same, same spot where he broke the pole two years ago or whatever, and the guy brought him a new one. So they were just talking about the story. Man, remember last year when the guy, you know, brought us out? It was nice. He just died, unfortunately. And he sees a shadow swimming across the bottom and makes a Hail Mary cast out there. A fish comes up, eats it, and he catches it, and it wins him the tournament. Nah, that's a pretty so, cool story. Uh, you know, every time something like that happens, or every time somebody wins, there's a story like that involved. Mm-hmm. So, And you can tell when it's your turn. A lot of times you can tell on the first fish on the first day. Like one year, Monday morning, we hook a nice fish, a buddy of mine and I, we hook a nice fish. He goes out and does some stuff that we never see happen again before or since, and we lose the fish, and we go... Oh, man. Not our year. <laughs> Got to be a tough week. <laughs> yeah. well, you can come back from a lot of that stuff, but you can tell if it's your if it's your year, things have to come together. So there's some divine intervention, I think, that takes place too. But uh, so to win it is um, is a pretty cool thing, for okay. sure. I hope to do it again sometime. Absolutely. Well, I told y'all this guy knows his stuff. Yeah, right? no doubt he, about that. He's uh, it's, it's he's an amazing the guy. The ways of the bay. But just as <laughs> listen, just as is 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 as uh, knowledgeable as he is about that fishery in that area down there, uh, when when you're in the woods with him, he's like a sponge. He's asking questions. He's he's wanting to learn about sure. you know this up here, and he's he's really into bow hunting. He's got so he's it's just it's it's, it's interesting to me that this is his relaxation is to put on the camo. Well, it's not. He's to, you know, I, he's made a lot of comparisons to hunting and, and, that, and yeah. the, the the wonder of wildlife, you know, and the wonder. And I don't know if that's an A or a U. Or a O in the wonder of of nature, you know. Listen to him him talk about you know him being on that bow and he's soaking in probably the wind, the sun, the water temperature, what he's seeing in the water to make those decisions. You know, it's not any different than us us going out there, and that's the uh, the one of the main hooks for being outside. You know, whether you're fishing, hunting, gamekeeping, you know, working on water conservation projects, whatever it is, right? Yeah. And absolutely, and uh, one of the things that I uh, a lot of times will uh, talk about deer hunting the same way because Florida Bay is basically built up of a bunch of islands and a bunch of shallow ridges that have you know channels and points and bays and different things. So you can see it's not just the surface of the water that you're looking at; it's the topography mm-hmm. underneath it. So a lot of times, habitat diversity, right? A lot of times you're fishing a pinch point. 
You know, if there if there's a point that comes out off a flat that these fish are traveling, you know, they could be running for 20 miles through different area, but they're going to come around that point. Yeah. So on a certain tide, if the water's coming in, you sit on that point, maybe in a different spot on the point because they're going to cross it a different place. As the tide falls, you move out and fish the outside edge of that point. But you can get on a point like that, and you're just like river bottom. Mm-hmm. Now, if you're hunting river bottom for deer, it's like a little pinch point. It's a pinch point, absolutely. The deer are going to come in there. They got to go around you there, so they in distance for a bow shot so when you're fly fishing you want to make sure that you got fish swimming close enough that you can throw the fly out and not you know be sitting inside watching them swim too hard 200 yards away from you you want them inside of like 40 feet 50 feet so you can move around do different stuff like that so a lot of times it's exactly like deer hunting Mm -hmm. you know you might pull into an area which is uh what looks like nothing from the surface but actually it may be you know a hundred acre bay that's 10 feet deep and it's uh, surrounded by shallow flats and a couple channels where they come in one way and they come out the other way, just like a lake, you know, rivers and creeks feed in and then they come out the other way. So if you know that topography underneath and now because of electronics, you know, amazing. Yeah. You can look at everything, (laughs) but when I learned how to do it, we didn't have electronics like that. We didn't have a GPS. We didn't have anything. We had plastic charts and we had a compass and, th- and we had a push pole at the 20-foot-long fiberglass pole that you'd shut the motor off, you get on the back of the thing, and you start pushing around. And you follow those banks, and you see, and it's like, okay, well, there's tarpon just busted out of the lake there, but ooh, now they're hitting the bank. Well, now they're swimming right to me. So you start doing all that stuff. That's how we learned what was going on. Unfortunately, when I started guiding uh, in the Florida Bay especially, there was people that were afraid to even go there mm-hmm. because you got a tide fluctuation. you got a six-hour incoming and tide falling. So between the high tide and low tide, you might have three feet of water water change. So And sometimes you might only have a foot of water on top of a flat during the high tide. And when it goes down... You might be there for a while. You will be there for a while. <laughs> you will be there for a while. So a lot of people were afraid to even venture into the Florida Bay when I started guiding. Now you can... Oh, technology. We talk about it all the time here. You can buy a GPS. You can buy a Florida Marine track chart, which is basically a satellite picture of showing you everything. And somebody's gone through and marked all the pathways and all the little contours and cuts and little secret spots that we used to know of because we found them. And now you can buy that and you've got it. So there's a lot more people out there, you know, trying to fish the same actually not even the same amount of area but lesser area because the fish aren't traveling in the same areas as they used to so it gets pretty heated sometimes but you know hopefully everybody can work together and have respect for everybody else and uh, we'll all keep getting along for a while so yeah that's just like duck hunters in these management areas everybody's got to get along oh yeah respect each other absolutely yeah and, and on the electronics thing it can give you a lot of information but it doesn't you know tell you it just doesn't give you the gut you know what I mean? And the stuff right. you develop over the years right. uh, to make the changes before everybody else is. So there's there's definitely an art form to it. I was going to ask that question. Do you rely as much on electronics or do you, you know, rely on the, the old school ways of you, the way you used to do it? Well, I, I, both, both. I like the electronics for uh, a crutch, you know, mm-hmm. sometimes. Confirmation. I have a GPS. And a lot of times, you know, with visibility and changing elements out there, you know, you go out there one day and you can see everything perfect. Sun's mm-hmm. up, there's not a cloud in the sky, you can see everything. As soon as you get a little bit of clouds, you got the reflection now off the surface, so your visibility through the water is a lot different. So what you could see really good on one day, you might have a really hard time finding on another day. Mm-hmm. Also, you have currents flowing in different directions. You have the wind coming from different directions. So sometimes 
with a little bit of wind coming from one way against the current, it's going to make the water stack up. So you know that your deeper water, your channel that you want to travel through is going to be a little bit choppier because of the way. But if the current is coming the same way as the wind, it could be as calm as everything else around it. So it's really hard to see. So I do like to use it as a reference. And yep. sometimes if it's got a track on there, if I go out one day and I fish and I do something on a fine fish in an area and I'm pulling around, I'll go out the next day and I'll go, well, f- yesterday they are right in here. And I, so I do use it, but mm-hmm. not as much as a lot of people do. Yeah. I can tell you, I've used it before and I've been stuck before because of the, you know, oh, yeah. it doesn't factor in the tide enough for you sometimes. Oh, yeah. And some <laughs> of them aren't as accurate. I used to have the GPS that I had, it would show me an area and then you'd go run into a place like Nine Mile Bank. It's a flat that runs for nine miles. Mm-hmm. Okay. And it's got uh, different uh, uh, points and shallow ridges. It's got some channels that cut through it. And I only knew of a few of the channels that were marked. And once I got the satellite picture of it, it's like, whoa, look at all lots of places to fish. And not only that, but yeah, and they used to have uh, navigational aids above the water level. So they took a lot of those out. So now you can't see it, but a lot of things have changed. But I do use electronics. And uh, yes, I do rely on them somewhat, but mostly um, go with that gut. It's knowledge. Yeah, yeah knowledge and gut. Hmm. That's cool. Um, so. It's a little bit of a change of subject. So I, I know probably hiring a guide is, is the best way to get started fly fishing uh, yeah. if, you've, if you've never held a fly rod before. But uh, do you have a recommendation? Like is there like an all-purpose size uh, rig set up that somebody that wanted to get into fly fishing, you know, maybe start with panfish or largemouth uh, and like a basic cast or is there a set of YouTube video or – you know, how would somebody get started that doesn't really have a mentor? Uh, there's a lot of things you just said. Yeah, YouTube, there's different stuff. You can go online, um, you know, find different videos on casting. Chico Fernandez does some uh, the essence of fly casting. There's books on it. There's all different kinds of ways. But the best way to do it, and not, not necessarily hire a guide, but um, just a fly rod. Uh, it really depends on what you're going to be fishing for. Sure, right? sure. When we do, I, I work at the Florida Keys Fly Fishing School with uh, Sandy Moretta, the Florida Keys Outfitters in Almorada, and we we try to advocate uh, an eight weight is probably the best size for the average person to start with. And the first thing you want to do is get it in your hand and get out there and see exactly what you can do with the fly rod. Maybe take a lesson from uh, a private instructor or do a fly fishing class somewhere or a school or something like that. We offer a school down there. It's uh, two days two days in, in the class with a couple hours each day of actual hands-on casting, but we go with soup to nuts, you know, how a, a fly line is designed, what it's made out of, the different tapers, things like that, how to structure your leader, uh, fly rods, how they're made, what they're made out of, different materials are made out of, different pieces, one piece versus a four piece versus whatever, uh, reels, rods and reels. We go over reels, the types, we go through different flies, um, fly selection for different types of fish, things like that, and then actual casting and instruction. Then on the second day, we do a skiff layout, how to, you know, get on the boat because it's a big difference. You're learning most of the time when you're learning, you want to be someplace where you have 360 degree ability to cast and whatever. A lot of times it's on the grass. Okay. You don't need to go stand on the edge of the water and throw into the water in one direction. The best thing to do is stand someplace where you're surrounded by grass Figure out where the wind's coming from. Figure out how to work the wind to your advantage and be able to cast in any direction. Okay, regular forehand cast in one direction, uh, backhand cast to the other side of the boat, depending on which way the wind's coming. 
factoring in that if you're on a boat, you've got a guide that's standing 16 <laughs> feet behind you. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So if he sees something at what we call 12 o'clock, which is being straight off the bow of the boat, it's 12 o'clock all the time. Uh, Two o'clock is to the right, 10 o'clock to the left. So that's how we, you know, try to get people looking for a fish anyway. So you got that, Mike? Did you get that? So you have to figure out what's going to, how you can make a cast to a certain area without hooking yourself or hooking the guide, first of all, and then being able to put the fly in front of a fish, depending on which direction he's moving. Um, If you're saltwater fishing, that's a little bit more difficult because a fish can show up from any direction. There's so many variables. You have current, you have wind, you have, you know, different things like a river the water is always flowing one direction so you can pretty much set yourself up to get a cast and let it swing down river things like that on the ocean it's a big different story we're in the bay on the bow of the boat it's a different story so but the best thing to do is get a rod maybe take a lesson or watch youtube video or something just give you some semblance of how to get started get started and get out there and start just basically developing your casting stroke Okay, and basically that is you want to keep your rod tip moving in a parallel plane and your line's going to follow it. Whatever you do with that rod tip, your line follows it. So basically you want to throw it in a straight line in the direction where you want it to go, let it land. So get out there and practice and start seeing how you can load your rod and flex it. And basically the difference between fly casting versus spin casting or something with a spinning rod, you've got a weighted lure and you're using that weight of that lure to flex your rod, and then mm-hmm. you're sending it in a direction, and the line is attached to it, and it just follows your lure out to wherever direction you're sending it. With a fly line, the weight is incorporated in the fly line. Okay, most of the time the fly line is 100 feet long, and the first 30 feet of it, if it's a weight forward, um, weight forward fly line, first 30 feet of it is going to have the weight that you need to flex that rod properly. Okay, so as you get started casting, you want to work your line out till you have that 30 feet out, and then you can get it going in the direction that you want to. And once you've got it going in the direction that you want to, then you stop your rod at the end of your forward cast after you formed your loop, and you actually propel that line out towards your target, and it's dragging your fly with it. And as it gets towards your target, you slow it down, let your loop turn over, and as it hits the water, you're nice and soft. You've got a straight line, drop your tip, and then you manipulate the fly in front of the fish, and he bites it. So that's the difference. So first thing you have to do is master your cast, okay? And it's practice, practice, practice. We usually tell people it's going to take about 20 hours of practice to groove your casting stroke, okay? Once you've got your casting stroke going, there's some things you can do with your opposite hand to make that happen a lot faster. It's called a double haul which is like, you know, walking, rubbing your belly and patting your head at the same time. So it takes a little bit to get used to. Some people pick it up real fast. Some people, it takes them a while. So, but if you can, if you can double haul, that's going to help your casting immensely. So there's first couple of things you want to learn, get your casting stroke going, be able to do it with just the rod and put it in the direction that you want to be able to change directions and then do the double haul, which helps you exasperate or whatever, speed that whole process up. Okay, so get out, practice with your cast, and then you go hire a guide, and you get on the front of his boat. Okay, and then when you're on the boat, bow time, nothing is going to help you like bow time does. Just like nothing is going to help you see wildlife in the woods other than being in the woods and looking Mm -hmm. for the wildlife and seeing. So being on the bow of the boat, first of all, and thinking about what your line's doing, and a good guide will show you all that stuff and and help you out. But then he's going to try to put you on fish. He's going to tell you, all right, 10 o'clock, 60 feet. I got a fish moving to the right. Do you see him? Point your rod. So you swing your rod out, point your rod at where you think 10 o'clock is. You go, yeah, I see him. He's right there. I said, okay, give me a cast 10 feet in front of him on exactly the line from his tail to his nose where he's going to be in 10 feet and put your fly there. So if you can't do that, 
you try again until you can. So, um, Bobby, you need to practice. Yeah, yeah. He, he'd be yelling at me the whole time. Well, no, yelling. I found out a long time ago that yelling doesn't help a lot. <laughs> and, it does around here. Yeah. Lastly, how many how many times have you been hooked by a client? Um, not too many. I've been I, I've hooked myself more than I've been hooked by my clients. Actually, interesting. I've, I've been hit by the fly. I haven't really been hooked by my clients, but most of the time, if I see them casting where the line's coming in the direction where it's going to hook me, I'm going to reach out and grab the line before the hook ever gets to me. Okay. Okay. I, I've had I have had them been you know flies popped off me and whatever, but never had the hook set in except for myself. And I okay. stuck myself right in the back of the ear one time. I've stuck myself in the leg. I've stuck myself in a lot of places. <laughs> But uh, that's just trying to do too many things. And then you realize, and the better you get at casting, the less that's going to happen. So, But you got to think about it. And I'll tell people before they ever start casting, no, don't throw yet. Let me turn the boat. So then I give them a clear cast at a different angle where they're keeping it away from me. But, and the better you get at it, you can do different things. And, you know, um, but it's practice. And what you're trying to do when you're practicing your cast is to build muscle memory. So you don't want to continue doing it all day. You want to do it for a half hour, 30 minutes, 45 minutes at a time, and then stop, take a sip of water, go do something else, come back, grab your rod again, and do it again. And just keep grooving it until you're just like riding a bike. Once you've got it figured out and the actual practice of getting a rod to do its job, to load that rod so you can flex it and propel your line in the direction that you want is is, – once you figure that out, once you get that feel, you go, oh, I got it now. And once you feel a loaded rod and you know what it feels like to load a rod, you're good to go. Because then you can do all kinds of different stuff to find the load and then send it the direction that you want to. So, hmm. But the thing about it is even while you're practicing, you're not fishing at all. You're standing in the grass. It's still fun. And you can learn a lot just by watching your, how your line reacts. You know, if you've got a loop that's going straight over the top, you're throwing it pretty much if you want. If you've got a loop that's going right to left, it's because you're swinging your rod too much or turning your body. I see people cast and they're moving their weight, shifting their weight. To, okay, if you're on the bow of a boat, 16-foot boat that's four feet wide, doing that, what's going to happen? The boat's going to go like that. <laughs> yeah. So a lot of different things. But just start practicing, get out there, see what you can do with the fly rod, and then take it to the actual water. Gotcha. Well, wow, so this guy just knows so much. He's, he's just an incredible, interesting guy. And uh, we, we sure appreciate you being here. I hope you've had fun this week up here. Oh, hunting. man, I love coming up and hanging out with the guys from Mossy Oak, and I really <laughs> appreciate it. It's, it's a treat for me, really, because, uh, you know, I've been in the Keys for 61 years, and where I live, you can't even discharge a firearm in the county that I live in. So for me, oh, hunting— man. We'll give you one when you get here. <laughs> well, well, I've, I've got plenty of them. I just can't discharge them down there. So my, my hunting down there is uh, for iguanas with a high-powered pellet gun, which I, <laughs> that's part of my practice. So How do they um, taste? I don't know. You'd have to ask somebody else. <laughs> like chicken. I've heard like chicken. Like, yeah, just like rattlesnake and chicken and everything else. But uh, anyway, for me, it's a treat to come up here. I mean, it's uh, I'm hunting all the time. So when I get in the woods, a big part of it for me is being kind of in an enclosed area here. And I get out in areas where I'm not familiar with. So the fear of getting lost there sometimes is like pretty crazy, too. But, you know. Yeah. So if a guy was listening to this and wanted to come down there and go fishing with you, how does he get in touch with you? Uh, call me on my cell phone, 305-393-0271, or uh, uh, look at, look for me at the Lorelei maybe in the afternoon after I'm done fishing. I might be in the <laughs> um, He doesn't do social media. Yeah. He's, old, he's old school. Well, I like most of these good guides out there, you, you, you almost don't. don't have to advertise. That's you know? right. It's just, well, 
When I first started guiding, that's part of what I did. I was fishing as many days as I wanted to, and I didn't even have a business card. So it was all word of mouth, and I was really busy. So with social media, what's going on, Instagram, a lot of stuff, there's a lot of young guys getting into the industry now, and they're putting their stuff out. So I'm not as I'm not easy to find on social media, but uh, and I'm not as busy as I used to be. So I have some availability, but, uh, yeah, that's the best way to find me. And phone number okay. is the best way to talk to anybody. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Or you can, uh, you know, email me or whatever at uh, what I think at uh, Captain Abbreviated C-A-P-T period Craig Brewer at uh, gmail.com. I the old Gmail. Yeah, his boat's called the Brew-Ha-Ha. One of them is. One of them's the Brew-Ha-Ha. I have a 23-foot Seacraft, a 1973 model that I purchased, and it was ragged out, and I spent about five years restoring it, and it's a, it's a gem. That's not the boat that I fish out of, though. My money maker is a 17-foot Maverick that I bought in 2003, and it's still in great shape, and it's called the Mudman. Oh, the right. Mudman. Actually, the Mudman won, and there's a story behind that, but I'll save that for another time. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> Must yeah, be having a two on the way. No, that's uh, actually, uh, yeah, uh, a lot of the offshore guys that fish in the blue water, they called our shallow guys, you know, who fish in the shallow, dirty water mud men. So, uh, I didn't know it. that. I, like I didn't know that for a long time, but I found that out. So I named my boat the Mud Man One, yeah. Well, we, uh, looking That's at right. you wearing that bottom land, mud man fits you pretty yeah, good. Yeah, I, I like the bottom land, man. Camo is my favorite color. So yeah. And, <laughs> and, and you guys got some great camo, so I, I appreciate you letting me come up here and enjoy in this place. And, uh, yeah, I'm a big fan of Mossy Oak, no doubt That's one it. of the things he said to me when we were fishing. He said, just out of the blue, he said, camo's my favorite color. And I yeah. knew I was going to like him. I'm going to take this guy deer hunting. <laughs> yeah. So, look, let me, let's kind of turn around here. Uh, but, uh, Craig, and you can weigh in here. Mossy Oak has developed some fishing patterns, and they're not necessarily to hide you from fish per se, but there's there's cool fabrics that keep you keep oh. you cooler on the water or even warmer on the water, depending on what you're wearing. But uh, Mac, don't you have some information you can share with us about that? Yeah, so I mean, I mean, how you're dressed is is a big deal when it comes to fishing. I mean, with the sun and the bugs, and, and you really want to have the right apparel for you um, when you go out on the water. And I mean, we've got a lot of cool stuff with a lot of different element camos uh, through Mossy Oak, and you you can see those at store.mossyoak.com/fishing, and uh, it's really neat. I mean, from hoodies to net gaiters. I mean, it, it really will have you looking good and feeling good, I mean, when you're out on the water. And I personally recommend that you take advantage of all the high-tech clothing. And uh, my, my, my daily outfit is basically what you see me with right now, except, uh, yeah, I wear tennis shoes to cover my feet. Uh, I can't stand up barefoot for too long. Uh, it bothers my back, but I wear long pants every day, uh, so I don't have to put sunscreen on my legs. Uh, my skin is so torn up from 60 years in the sun that that's probably going to be the the death of me, I would think, but um, I get stuff cut off all the time, mostly uh, squamous cell carcinomas and things like that, but I also wear long sleeves on the boat every day. Um, I wear a hat. I keep my ears covered. I wear a face gaiter, uh, keep things covered, cover my skin as much as I can on the boat, and I recommend if you're going down there, especially if you don't spend a lot of time outdoors like that, don't rely on sunscreen, okay? Rely on some good technical clothing and put it on. A lot of times, you'll be cooler if your skin is covered by the right kind of uh, clothing than you are 
if you're bare skinned. I was blown away by that because I've always, you know, worn cotton when they came out with some of these fabrics. I was like, this long sleeve hoodie is cooler than the t- cotton T-shirt. I'm know. so addicted to hoodies. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. It's pretty awesome. Yeah. Well, Craig, we've enjoyed having you absolutely. here today. Hey, been, been a lot pleasure. of fun. Pleasure. Hey. Pleasure's mine. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. So, yeah. So, I think we, uh, look, we've been going for well over an hour. So, let's just, Dudley, we got we got one next week with you and okay. Ash Dudley's lined yep. up. So, so this one's been all about fishing, all about the Everglades. I would encourage people to check out Captains for Clean Water. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is that it's right? It's great side I've been on today. Again, great illustrations of, of what he's been talking about today. Yeah. Also, it, also, maybe check out Bonefish Tarpon Trust. Bonefish yeah. Yeah. Well, and, So and Mossy Oak has gotten involved with the Bonefish Tarpon Trust. Excellent. Said, good, and, good, uh, good. So we're trying to su- support that yeah, organization. Yeah, do your own well. research. Yeah, Make your own decisions. Definitely. Get yeah. involved, though, and, uh, yes, save save the outdoors because there's only so much of it there, man. It's, it's, that's what we're supposed to be doing. Well, that's care. what being a gamekeeper is. So, sure. you know, it's not just deer, turkeys, ducks. It, it involves a lot of different critters around the world. So we're, we're proud to help shine a light on that. And uh, we thank you for being here. We've enjoyed having you. And, thank uh, you. Why don't you say goodbye, Dudley? All right. Goodbye, Dudley. Get us out of here, Matt. <laughs> Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of the Gamekeeper Podcast. And be sure to tune in again. Subscribe to Gamekeeper Farming for Wildlife magazine. And don't miss the Mossy Oak Properties Fistful of Dirt podcast with my good buddy, Ronnie Cuz Strickland. <laughs>